Welcome to our podcast on um, uh, the American Exceptionalism 1619 project and the response to it and an analysis of Trump's speech at the National Archives Museum. Um, let's go around and introduce ourselves. I'm Will. I'm going to be talking about an analysis of the Trump speech. Um, I'm Emma. I'm going to be talking about why stories matter. Um I'm Christian, I'm going to be looking at the uh, 1619 project and the backlash towards it. And I'm Luca, and I will also be having a closer look at the backlash and some of the stories that have come out of it. Why don't you start us off, Christian? Perfect. Um, so before looking at the backlash, it's important that the way we think about the where the backlash might come from, and well, hold on, let me say that again, sorry. Before the backlash, it is important to think about why there might be backlash from the right in America, and a big factor in this is the concept of American exceptionalism. The UEA Library Online tool will give you a brief definition of it, stating it's a political theory asserting that the United States is unique among all other nations in its devotion to democracy, liberty and self-government. The concept believes America has been this way since its beginning. Ronald Reagan heavily leaned into the idea of American exceptionalism and repeatedly used the idea of a city on a hill. Uh, that quote comes from a sermon by Puritan John Winthrop in 1613 after the founding of the city of Boston. Uh, in our workshop, we watched a video by former Republican Speaker and House of Representatives Newt Gingrich and his wife, former Ambassador to the Holy See under Donald Trump, uh, Callista Gingrich, which will look to define American exceptionalism from a modern Republican perspective, calling the US a special nation with plenty of Republican politicians and historians, reinforcing the original idea the video set out to promote. It showed one great homogenous state where, the lead, where they lead the world in terms of freedom, where they try, where the unity they try to betray is far from the truth in modern-day America, hence the divide between the right and the left on the 1619 project. The idea of homogenous America directly links to Benedict Anderson's idea of an imagined community, which looks at nationalism and people who perceive themselves as part of one big nationwide group, which I believe they try to betray in their video, conveying the US as an almost harmonious place where they are the fighters for democracy. Deborah L. Marston, in the introduction of her book, American Exceptionalism, calls it one of the most important concepts underlying modern theories of American cultural identity. Madsen also speaks on the contemporary idea of exceptionalism and how they have led to them attempting to spread their ideas of freedom and democracy around the world, most likely due to the rise in media communications in the last 100 years. Madsen states that when, we, when talking about the Vietnam War, a struggle for cultural survival, by appropriation, annexation, conquest and invasion, the Anglo-Saxon United States has spun the thread of exceptionalism across the a continent and through four centuries of cultural development. Exceptionalism was the legacy of an old war for the new, but exceptionalism is now the legacy of the United States for us all. Here she speaks on how it is forced onto us as the USA tried to keep balance around the world, even though they struggle to keep unity at home. Effectively, as I understand it, American exceptionalism is the idea that the US is a special nation with a devotion to democracy, who the rest of the world can look on as an example, hence the idea of being on top of a hill. However, this idea is hugely flawed and has become a point of great contention in the US today. Uh, over to you, Will. Um, I'd like to ask a question about that. Um, the you highlighted some of the um, the key tenets of American exceptionalism as democracy, liberty, and self-government, but those are hardly exclusive to the United States. Those are things that lots of countries either um, are proud of having or aspire to have. Um, how do you think that affects? this this idea of american exceptionalism um i just see the us they see i believe they see themselves as these great as i say a city upon a hill they are what the rest of the world can look to 
as an example for them all and they see themselves as the leaders in democracy, as the leaders in all those factors you just mentioned, rightly or wrongly, that's the way they see themselves. Whether that That's obviously highly contentional. You can only contend that as long as you like, but that's the way I think a lot of Americans, especially conservative Republican Americans, see their nation and themselves. Another idea I wanted to sort of zoom in on a bit was um, the idea of homogeneity versus the melting pot, because a lot of Americans are quite proud of of their roots as, as Irish Americans or, or German Americans or Jewish or Native Americans, African Americans. They're quite, a lot of Americans are quite proud of that I- melting pot identity. And is that something which is not compatible with American exceptionalism? I think if... Or is that one of the things which people would say makes America exceptional? I think it's definitely like... A, a mix of all different cultures in America, but I don't think that's like a pillar of American exceptionalism itself. I think they would probably use that as a little brief note and say, oh, but look at this, maybe. But in terms of, I think they're, the whole concept is just about how wonderful they are throughout history. Maybe, like you say, the melting pot, they are obviously, there's a mix of hundreds of cultures in, in America. And I think that definitely is part of their identity, but whether um, they want to acknowledge the negative parts of their past with the melting pot and the way they treat different communities, that's like a big contentious point that we looked at, we're going to look at in the 1619 project. Would anyone else like to ask Christian any questions about it? Um, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm all good. I think, well, you can... I think that was good. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Expanding on the idea of American exceptionalism, one of the reasons why it's developed is because the United States, rather than being... Uh, drawing its identity from the territory of a particular noble family who ruled over it or a group of people who all spoke the same language. It was founded on ideological differences from the British Empire and those differences are uh, crystallised in the US Constitution which uh, the proponents of American exceptionalism would... uh, would say provides an ideal framework for government that the rest of the world aspires to. And in Donald Trump's speech at the National Archives Museum, you can see particular linguistic appeals towards that exceptionalism. He says things like that they're there to honour the virtue of heroes and the nobility of the American character. Um, So you can see he's really appealing to that idea that there's something intrinsically Um, intrinsically superior about the American Constitution which is uh, reflected in the identity of the nation. However, another thing that Trump identifies is an enemy of uh, of uh, what he would perceive as being the ideals of American exceptionalism and it's quite a diverse group. He names establishment media, street mobs, left-wing cultural revolution, large corporations and liberal politicians as being the enemies of um, the enemies of the America that he likes to espouse. And that, that's quite a diverse group. You might think that um, uh, the left-wing cultural revolution didn't have very much in common with large corporations. But... Uh, To Trump, that's not a contradiction. Um, He characterises these opponents as attacking America, describes them as radical, as violent, um, 
of having a cancel culture and decades of indoctrination. He says that they're bullying, silencing dissent, and um, that they're instructing students from propaganda tracts. And he takes particular aim at the New York Times, saying there is no better example of uh, an attack on America than the New York Times totally discredited 1619 project. He says, uh, this project rewrites American history to teach our children that we're founded on the principle of oppression, not freedom. And we're going to hear more about the 1619 project later. But um, I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of history, which is saying that somebody's rewriting history. I mean, isn't all history a rewriting? Uh, well, I was just going to ask you, Will, with the, I mean, it's very, I'm not going to speak for anyone else, but I can't agree with what he says. Like you said, it's fundamental the way he talks about like the superiority they think that's sort of ingrained in their psyche as Americans. But do you think any of the factors that he brought brought up when it was, I think it was like big corporations, print media, um, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but do you think there's any merit in any of what he says there? Any of the factors? Because like, I know from our country, the media can be so poisonous in a sense. I don't know enough about American, like the media out there or like print media, but do you think there's any merit in any of what he says in, in terms of the factors he brings up? Well, I think Donald Trump basically has a problem with anybody that disagrees with him. And there are certain sections of the media which are very supportive of him. I, I guess he's not including those when he, uh, when he identifies um, establishment media as, as being the uh, attacking America. I guess the, the media which supports him, he's not actually, he's not um, criticizing them. Uh, you saw this, for example, with Fox News, how Trump had a very cosy relationship with Fox News and, in fact, was basing quite a lot of policy on things that he saw on Fox News. Apparently, he had it on pretty much constantly. Um, but as soon as they said that Biden had won the election, he turned against them because he saw them as being a group which should have been supporting him and that he perceived them as betraying him by calling the election for Biden. It's an interesting point you say there about him turning against the one media outlet that he sort of saw that he could trust because when I remember from one of our weeks, I think it was actually might have been week one, we looked at the danger of the single story and that links to obviously he's only getting his news from one avenue. He's only taking what he sees from one place so he's not getting any other perspectives and then it's funny how you say like he literally as soon as they announced that Biden won that was it he was that was yeah. he was he was done he with perceived them as betraying him yeah. so he turned on them and said you should all watch one American news instead yeah I checked out one American news they have some pretty wild stuff on there and I think Trump identifying the enemies as anybody that disagrees with him is why you get quite disparate groups identified there um, as a left-wing street mob and large corporations I mean, those are those are two groups whose interests are not really aligned. You could say, you could maybe make an argument for it if you looked at uh, the large corporations who endorsed the Black Lives Matter movement and say, if you were taking a sort of Trumpian perspective on it, that they were intimidated by a street mob. But you could also say it's a cynical 
capitalist move because they don't want to alienate 25% of America who buy their products by saying that their lives don't matter. Trump is uh, glorifying the past um, by having this conference in the uh, Hall of National Archives. He labels it as the sacred home of national memory and our glorious inheritance. He says of the Constitution, no political document has done more to advance the human condition. That's um, erasing things like the three-fifths compromise, which are written into the Constitution. That's hard-baked inequality in there. I have some more quotes from uh, some of Trump's supporters. Uh, this was one from 2016, after Trump was elected, from Representative Lamar Smith, who... It's important to note was the chairman of the House Committee on Science, Space and Technology and member of the House Freedom of the Press Caucus at the time. And he said, the national liberal media won't print that, referring to Trump's achievements, or post it. Better to get your news directly from the president. In fact, it might be the only way to get the unvarnished truth. So he's identified Trump as the font of all knowledge and this guy is the chairman of the House Committee on Science, Space and Technology. So uh, ignoring any other source of knowledge, I wanted to quote the former Republican governor of uh, Indiana, Mitch Daniels, who was Mike Pence's predecessor, who said in 2010 about uh, the death of Howard Zinn, a left-wing historian who Trump name-checked as, um, as attacking America, he said, this terrible anti-American academic has finally passed away. The obits and commentaries mentioned in his book, A People's History of the United States, as the textbook of choice in high schools and colleges around this country, is a truly execrable, anti-factual piece of disinformation that misstates American history on every page. Can someone assure me that it's not in use anywhere in Indiana? If it is, how do we get rid of it before more young people are force-fed a totally false version of our history? What that really ties into is education being a battleground for this culture war that, um, that Trump is uh, engaging in. And uh, I guess you could put the Washington, uh, sorry, the New York Times on the other side of that with its 1619 project. Trump also name-checks... Um, Martin Luther King, when he does so, he doesn't address the way that federal law enforcement spied upon and attempted to smear Dr. King during his lifetime. When he name-checks George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, he probably does so in the knowledge that they are divisive figures who are considered heroic to some and racist to others. Does anyone have any questions to ask me? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, I mean, I like the point that you say that you um, make about education. I mean, nowadays in the modern you know modern times is like the amount of information one can get i mean education now becoming a real modern battleground because you know education really is a lasting thing we look at something like another example like america's kind of educational battle when it comes to say like the civil war and kind of like the the kind of the south kind of romanticism that came with something like the confederacy and stuff like that uh, yeah absolutely the um they call it the lost cause myth. Um, and having, uh, I guess, quite a devolved uh, 
um, system of education in America where states are, res are responsible for the education within that state. You can, um, you can get a real difference between what education looks like in one state and what it looks like in another. But to use an example that's a bit closer to home in Northern Ireland, you had um, the government funded schools which were getting their textbooks printed in the UK. And you had the um, schools which were funded by the Catholic Church, which were independent schools. And um, they were getting their textbooks printed in the Republic of Ireland. And if you put the two textbooks side by side, you wouldn't think they were talking about the same country from their view of history. So that's an example of how this can happen much closer to home. Anyone got anything else to say? Or no, I think we've yeah, there's okay. a quite comprehensive cover of the speech. <laughs> yeah, that was very good. Um, so, I mean, going on to, like, the further looking at the backlash, I mean, no nation likes or wants to be, like, the, the story's villain, right? So the treatment of... African Americans poses a problem for the for received American history and the country's perceived, you know, historical rights and freedom of equality. I mean, since the publication of the New York Times' 2019, 1619 project, um, it's become one of modern America's most debated subjects. And um, for its effort to rewrite the birth of a nation and what has been brought with, like, enormous clash, especially with America's long... Um, belief of like the spirit of 76 um, you know it's 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 part of their DNA so you know in in spite of accusations of trying to whitewash American history there have been 27 state-level attempts to ban educators from using critical race theory um, and what is that exactly well it's defined as a a cross-disciplinary examination by social and civil rights scholars and activists on how laws and social and political movements and media shaped and are shaped by social conceptions of race and ethnicity of which something like the 1619 project is seen as a, as the prime example of that but Surely one side's accusation of ideological bias and another side's idea of free speech, after all, isn't what the First Amendment is all about. You know, anyone can say what they perceive is the the right, the, you know, what they believe in, so why can't something like the 1619 Project be that as well? You know, I mean, either way, the result, you know, um, is now that we're looking at an education war, as Will so rightfully said in the U.S., um, with something like the Spirit of 76 is now pitted against the 1619 Project. Um, that I found that I found a website called uh, criticalrace.org, um, which actively tracks schools, colleges, and universities across the United States, um, which engage in critical race theory and provide a database for parents and students to help combat this new radical ideology, as it says, and identity politics. Um, this has been countered, subsequently, by the 1619 Project's educational network, with the Pulitzer Prize Center providing support and guidance to those schools wishing to implement 1619 resources into their classroom, uh, and, and with selected educators receiving $5,000 grants to help fund podcasts and other creative projects that that school or university wishes to make. However, this isn't just a school-related 
fight. This cuts across all aspects of American society, which and at the very foundations upon the U.S. was built, namely freedom and equality. I mean, which story do you want to believe? Well, that might depend on whether or not you see yourself as a descendant of the men who, who were created equal, because contrary to the Declaration of Independence, clearly not all men were equal. So was America instead founded on a, something called a slaveocracy and bondage, and a current racial inequality is a consequence of that? You may argue that the 1619 Project is historically flawed, even though its author, Hannah Jones, recently cautioned that it's not the origin story of this country. There may be many. But you can't deny the need to paint a more balanced image of the nation's history. The New York Times says that the 1619 Project sets out to show the consequence of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the center of our national narrative. And if we accept that the nation was both physically and economically built by enslaved people who were forcibly brought to its shores, then it could be said that black Americans were builders or even the creators of the United States. However, given the long-running divisions in the country, it's perhaps not surprising that the 1619 Project launched such a seismic public debate and that publications like the 1776 report have led to such backlashes, a backlash against it. Apart from anything else, it makes... For an uncomfortable reading and a level of interest um, that may people may not be willing to engage in, and what would happen to Fourth of uh, July celebrations and the national anthem, both of which are seen as the very essence of America and what it is to be American, but then history is there to be questioned and, when necessary, reviewed, rebalanced, and rewritten. Anything got? Yeah, go on, Christian. Um, I was just going to say, when you spoke about um, Hannah Jones and how she sort of had to come, how she came back and said, this isn't the one story of America. And when I read the 1619 Project, you can get a sense of how personal it is for her. And she speaks a lot about her heritage, her time in the classroom, her dad's heritage in America and like how hard he's worked. How important is it, do you think, that how emotion, how she's sort of, it's very emotion ridden in, in its core the way she's written it for a lot of the part. I know there's a lot of factual and she's got a lot of evidence to back up what she says, but when she's writing from her perspective, how important do you think that sort of like emotion that she brings into it is? I think, I think at least, I think it's very important. I think that something like this is, when it, when it also affects you on a personal level and say like your descendants and your ancestors and what your, your children and your grandchildren, yeah, exactly, your family will look like, then for you it can be, it can, you know, you have to kind of bring the the personal aspect to it in some in some sense. And I think with what Hannah Jones did and what I think we've all learned throughout something like this module that we've all done, I think that, you know, it shows how powerful stories can be. And I think that having a personal connection to it can only help build that story and, and make it even more powerful. I mean, I... I was listening, I don't know if any of you guys have listened to it, but I, I had a little listen to, because it's not just, they've obviously written a book, they've written as children's books on, uh, connected to the 1619 Project as well as the podcast. And the podcast itself as well, is it's very emotional and it's very much like a story. It's not quite, the the first, the very beginning, you kind of, they use different noises to kind of create an atmosphere and they use and kind of a lot of connotations with water and that they came from the water and, and instead, it's not just say like a podcast where it's like just like a general discussion with great minds. It really has got a really powerful story behind it. 
in um, one of the poems that I studied last year, uh, Zong, it's about um, about the lives that were lost in the water uh, during the Middle Passage, um, and uh, uh, in the piece that we read on the 1619 project as well, um, Hannah Jones talks about um, being born on the water as well, and you you can look at it as as born with or without an e, either born on the water as in travelling over it, or or born on the water as in that was the place of your birth. And um, I think it's a it's interesting to look at those two ideas in parallel. Zong doesn't actually pertain to the United States. It the those slaves were destined for um, the Caribbean, but um, uh, the way that uh, Norbis or Philip talks about it, um, both in the poem and around it, as being like she was lifting bodies out of the water. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, I guess we can move on to the yeah to the next bit. Okay, so moving on to why stories matter. Um, I just wrote that um, storytelling obviously allows us to create um, important connections with those willing to hear. Um, and it also has the ability to share, to both share information and help recommit to their vision. Um, we engage with others through the ability to share and reshare the same stories. And with that being said, storytelling has a lot more connected to it than a simple recitation of events and experiences. Um, As humans, sharing stories creates an emotional bond. It gives us a deeper understanding of other people's experiences and we often see ourselves reflected in them. Storytelling builds the foundational role of human cognition and communication. It creates an awareness of common values that are passed down through generations and are spread across nations. Regarding race, storytelling helps to preserve and pass on timeless cultural wisdom, keeping the generational traditions alive. Throughout history, there has been an unprecedented number of stories that recite the experiences of black individuals that have, for generations, had to navigate the very same systems that were created by those with racist beliefs. Historically, black communities had just enough access to healthcare facilities to stay alive, but not enough and as a result were more likely to die. This is understood from historians piecing together the clear stories of those who were within the healthcare systems at the time. This one piece of history shows how important stories are in giving black people a voice that they weren't given for decades. The power in these stories further emulate how long-lived they can really be, existing on this earth for years, waiting for someone to uncover them and further pass it on. Stories have been conjured up long before recorded history, and for a vast amount of time, storytellers were highly regarded individuals within society. Being able to effectively recite these stories was seen as very valuable and important, um, giving not only the storytellers a role within society, but the exact stories as well. As wars were just beginning and historical events were unravelling, people needed some way to record and remember them. Consequently, storytelling emerged in order, to, in order to preserve every experience and the emotions that went with it. In conclusion, 
history has only ever been a series of long and short stories, really, that when recited, relay lessons that us as readers can learn and pass on. Every story we hear serves a purpose, even if that purpose is to simply turn over a message. Without their version of history that is accessible to us, without chronicled stories and manuscripts, lessons would never be learned and mistakes could never be rectified. Due to storytelling playing such an incredible role in our culture and behaviour, this pattern of retelling wisdom and experience will forever be passed down through generations to come, whether those stories are old, whether those stories are old ones or recent ones. Thank you. Perfect. <coughs> cool beans. Mm-hmm. <gasps>